going to this morning be in Mark, uh, in Mark chapter 6. Um, great to see everyone this morning. I hope everybody's having an awesome summer. Uh, I know a few of you guys have been away on vacations and spending time with family. And um, despite all the rain, um, there has been relational growth, uh, I hope, during the, uh, during the time away. So um, welcome back. Welcome back. It was a great Father's Day uh, last week. Uh, and um, yeah, I'm excited about this passage um, this morning. There is a lot um, that we're going uh, to be looking at. So everybody kind of like settle in, okay, because this is a great passage. And it's, um, I think it's really important that we, as we work through um, this middle portion of Mark chapter 6, that we consider both what has come before and what is coming after, because um, there really is heartbreak that bookends both um, ends of kind of what we see going on uh, in our passage this morning, in which we see Jesus sending out uh, sending out the, the, the 12 uh, apostles. And so we're going to have to work a little bit to see kind of like, okay, what's coming before, what's coming after, and how does that inform and, and influence the way that we view, understand, and engage in mission. We talk a lot about mission, like that we want mission to be something that as a church, we are continuously talking about and considering the way that it informs and influences the way that we relate with other people, the way that we live our lives, the way we um, spend our our money and uh, leverage our our relationships. Mission has to, as we um, submit ourselves to the word of the Lord and his desire for his people, it has to drive everything that we do. In fact, um, I I told you guys a few weeks ago about a conversation that I was having with another church planter um, who is in Carrollton, who is planting over on Noonan Street, Four Corners, uh, no, Livingstone's uh, Church. Um, He and I were talking about the value of emphasizing mission within community, right? And if you step back and you kind of observe the way that we do things on a Sunday morning, we have a liturgy in everything that we do. We've said that from the beginning. That at our time that we spend greeting one another and meeting new people, um, that that is informed by the gospel. But we don't want to stop short of mission in relation to community. As I mentioned a, a couple of weeks ago, if you aim simply at community, I believe now <laughs> with all of my heart that you will miss the mark, right? But if you aim at mission, Right, and, and if you allow mission to influence the way that your community looks and the way that you relate with other people, I think that you get um, all of the benefits of mission in addition to living in obedience to the word of the Lord, while at the same time finding added depth in your community. Okay, we would all likely here this morning affirm, yeah, I desire, um, you know, healthy community, right? Well, I'm here to say that I believe that as we aim towards mission in our community and in our relationships, that there is this sense of authenticity that is brought into our community that really fulfills our heart's desire, right? And I think that we see a little bit this morning about about how that is informed based on what we see as Jesus sends out the 12. And so let's look at where we were last week very, uh, very quickly. Last week, um, we saw the rejection of Jesus from those who we said ought to have known him best, those within his hometown, right, within Nazareth, where Jesus was from. But on account of their hardness of heart, and their blind eyes and, and deaf ears, they miss it. Right? They, they see the works of Jesus. They hear the words of Jesus. And in hearing his words, they're amazed at the things that he is saying. But their amazement stops short of submission and confession and fellowship. Right? That it kind of stops before it gets to that point. They are astonished at everything that he's doing and everything that he is saying, but they reject his person. They reject his authority in part to, as we said last week, the familiarity that the people had with him. Oh, that's Jesus, right? Like he built our house, right? Like he played with our children growing up. And so for Jesus to come back and now to display uh, and to just exude this authoritative presence, right? That was something that they that they just couldn't wrap their arms around. 
Whereas those in Mark 5 see and feel their brokenness and in turn approach Christ in humility and faith, those in Nazareth are unable to see their need for grace and redemption. And as a result, Jesus refuses to move in the same way that we have seen him move through the first five chapters. He heals a few people, but then he continues on teaching through other towns. And as we kind of finished our time out last week, we, we, we drew emphasis to, as the text does, this beautiful picture of the gospel. This beautiful picture of the gospel in light of what we see present in our passage from Mark chapter 6 last week. Christ experiencing rejection, right, from his hometown and ultimately from the Father and the punishment for our sin upon himself so that we would not be rejected, but instead that we might be welcomed in, that we might be adopted in, that he would experience rejection for us so that we might experience sonship and daughtership to him, that we might indeed cry out, Abba, Father, right? And this is a, this is a microcosm of what Jesus would experience from the nation of Israel for, for you and for me. And yet in the face of rejection, what does Jesus do? Well, he remains committed to the mission, right? He remains committed to mission. And so how do we respond? We said this last week, we're, we flee familiarity, right? And we fear pride. We preach the gospel to ourselves every day, desiring to know God in his word and fellowship with his People, We said it. It will require intentionality. This type of life requires intentionality. It requires this commitment to every day wake up and to say, yet again, we are broken. And yet again, Christ's grace is sufficient. The cross is sufficient. This is what Jesus has done for his people. And so we preach that to ourselves every, every day. It requires intentionality as we pursue after fellowship with his people. It requires a transformed mind and heart, a work that the Spirit of God, in accordance with the will of the Father to the joy of the Son, alone is capable of. And so it's this whole Trinitarian work, right? It's like we see all of God present throughout the entirety of this process, and it's really quite remarkable. So what are we going to see this morning? This morning, I want to start with uh, where kind of I want us to land. My desire, in light of what we see from this passage, for our hearts and our minds this morning, okay? I want for us to embrace individually, as well as as a fellowship, the global mission of Christ. Okay, this is where I want us to go. I want us individually, you, where you are, where you're seated, and us corporately as a body, the church here planted on campus in Carrollton, Christ the King, to embrace the global mission of Christ. And so how does this happen? Well, we first must see something. We first must see the glory of Christ. And so you can really step back and say this, that in order for that first desire to be accomplished, individually and corporately, the mission of Christ to be uh, embraced by his people, we must first be amazed by the person and work of Jesus. We must first see the glory of Christ. Right, because seeing the glory of Christ gives way to a love for Christ. And a, a seeing the witnessing the glory of Christ and then, and then being driven into a position of love for Christ compels us all towards obedience to his word. And so we will go out into the world as his people, equipped with his spirit to proclaim his message. And so we have to land there first, right? A desire to see this morning the glory of Christ. And so I want us to start by asking um, and answering a series of questions just to get us all kind of on the same page. And so, so follow me here. Okay, I want to start with this question. I want you to consider it, and then I'm going to uh, encourage you to, to, gather around, around, uh, to gather together around this, this main idea. Okay, first, what is the mission of God? Consider that question for a moment. What is the mission of God? 
Well, I think that we can say this, that, that, the, that the mission of God is to rescue a people from eternal separation from him. This is, his, this is his mission, right? This is his will. This is his desire. This is his work. And he does so through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus out of a heart of compassion. Right? And in a heart of grace. And he does so to the glory of his name and for our good. And so this is the mission of God, to redeem a people, right? to, to rescue a rebellious people, to, to break our hearts, right? to provide us with new hearts that, that beat for and long for obedience to him, loving him, loving people. And this is, the, this is the mission of God. This is what he is doing. And he does so through the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross for our sins. And so that's the first question. What is the mission of God? To save a people, right? To, to save a people to the glory of his name. If you boil it down, if you peel it all back, it's this. To save a people to the glory of his name and for our good. That is the mission of of God. And so secondly, informed by the first, we can ask this, what then is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the people of God gathered together corporately and living lives within our communities, in our places of employment, where we go to school, where we live, right? Where we work and where we play. Well, I think we can say that it's it's something like this to to take the message of God to the nations, right? To take the message of God to the nations and to do so with the confidence in the plan, purpose, and will of God to save as the gospel is proclaimed. What's the mission of the church? What is our mission? What are we desiring uh, accomplishment through all that we do? What are we desiring to be realized through all that we do? Man, It's the proclamation of the gospel, right? It's the salvation of sinners. It's the sanctification of, of God's people, right? It's the glory of his name. This is what we desire. This is what the church desires. And so let's say this. If our hearts, even now, aren't aligned to that direction, I mean, let's begin to work that way, right? Let's ask the Lord even now to begin to work in our hearts that we might adopt this mentality. It's been said like this, that the mission of the church is mission, right? That the mission of the church is mission or the mission of the church is missions. And it's not complex and it's not confusing, although it, with that wording, it might sound a little bit, right? Everybody's like, wait a second, let me, mission of the church is missions, okay? Let me see what all that, that means. It's not confusing. It's not, it's not complex, right? Our mission is God's mission, right? Our mission is God's mission, and we can care about it, and we can commit to it, ultimately because God cares about it, and God is committed to it. And so what do I want us to see this morning from these, uh, these few verses that we're going to walk through? Three, three points um, that I want us to see from this morning's passage, all of which inform the mission of God's people, the church. Number one, Christ and his authority goes with his people on mission. Christ and his authority goes with his people on mission. Number two, Christ sustains his people in mission. And so not only does, does he and his authority go with his people as we live on mission, but Christ sustains his people in mission. And finally, Christ advances his gospel through mission. Okay, these are the three things that I want us to see this morning. So let's go to our passage, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7 uh, and going through verse, uh, going through verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, 
and they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And this is familiar. This is a familiar message that we'll talk about later on. Verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Amen. Hey, let us pray together. Father, thank you this morning again for your word and for being able to gather with your people. We pray that you might uh, open our eyes and our hearts, that you might transform us, that you might align our hearts with your will, that your will for our lives and for your people might uh, in turn be adopted by each and every one of us here this morning, that our lives would indeed be transformed as we gaze upon your mission. Your mission, the advancement of the gospel and the salvation of sinners. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So what is God's plan for the advance of his kingdom and the forgiveness from sin? This is a really important question, right? Because our understanding of the answer shapes the way that we see the call of God upon the lives of his people, saved by grace through faith in Christ. What does Christ desire from your life? That is undoubtedly a question that all of us have asked ourselves and perhaps even one another in this room before. What does Christ desire from your life? I think that we can say with confidence, based on what the scriptures say, that, that Christ desires worship of him. Right? Christ desires that we would worship him. Christ desires that our joy would be found in him, that our joy wouldn't be found in the things of this world, but that our joy would be rooted in and established in and fixed upon who he is. Christ desires worship of him. He desires joy in him, and he desires submission to him. Well, what is the problem with all that? Well, we're sinners, right? And as a result, we have failed to, to live, to accomplish uh, each of these three things in and of ourselves, to worship God and to submit to his law and to live in you know, perfect obedience as we should. We've all failed. We have all fallen short. In fact, uh, John goes as far as to say that if we say we are without sin, that we are liars and the truth is not in us. We, all of us, have fallen short of the glory of the Lord. And so what does that mean? Well, it means naturally in and of ourselves, because of our rebellion from God, our sin against him and our sin against his people, right, that we are lost. This is the consequence of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. We go back there almost every week, right? We are feeling the effects. We're seeing the effects all around us of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 and sin's entrance into the world. Right, the gospel, however, shows us the love, the justice, and the plan of God to redeem the rebel into right relationship with him by fulfilling the law where we have failed and equipping those who were previously lost to live not only as he has desired us to live, lives of obedience, but I would go as far as to say this. It's not simply lives of obedience that the gospel transforms us, enables us to live out, but it's fruitful, purposeful obedience. This morning we learned something about the work of God through his people. And the first is this, that the people of God now on mission for God do not go alone. And so we begin with this idea that we are, we are rebellious, that we have fallen short of God's righteous and holy standard that's laid out within his word, within his law. We have failed to keep God's law. Okay, the good news of the gospel is that Christ has lived in perfect obedience and perfect submission to the will and to the law of the Lord when then giving himself upon the cross, absorbing God's wrath to do our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? That's the good news of the gospel. 
that we might now, in light of all of this, begin to live on mission for God. And the good news is that we do not go alone. A few things that we see simply from verse 7 in this passage. Number one, there is a local and global fellowship that we serve alongside. There is a local and global fellowship that we serve alongside. And in addition to this, we go out with the authority of Christ to proclaim the message of life, the message of the gospel. Look at verse 7 with me. As Jesus sends his apostles out, says he calls the 12 and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus had just been rejected in his very own hometown and his response, verse 6 is going out and continuing to teach. And in doing so, as we said last week, he displays for his followers both a a realization and a response. And so what's the realization? The realization is that the person of Jesus and the message of Jesus will be rejected by many. Jesus will address how his followers are to deal with this later on. But we also see not only a realization, but a response. We see the response in that there is a commitment to the continued expansion of the expressed lordship of Christ. What do we mean by that? Well, because we know that Christ rules and reigns over all creation. Simply what we see going on through the gospel of Mark up until this point is individuals being brought into alignment with this realization. They are now expressing the lordship, the deity, the power, the kingship of Jesus. That's the, that's the difference that we see. The individuals are now embracing this, this news. We see Christ over the course of, of, of Mark's gospel and even what we see going on this morning, an all-out assault on the forces of evil that are at work in this fallen world. We see that there is a local and global fellowship that we serve alongside. Isn't it interesting how in verse 7, Jesus sends his followers out in groups of two. To do what? Well, to engage the community around them. In doing so, we see this emphasizing of the legitimacy of the message, that there is no lone ranger Christian that's out there just like taking the hill all by themselves, right? But there is a a legitimacy to the message of the gospel that is displayed and emphasized through the mission of God's people going out together, right? That I'm not walking up to an individual and sharing this news all alone, but there is a body behind me, right? A a group of individuals that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, whose eyes have been opened, right? And who are now living in submission to and obedience to his word. We see the message legitimized by by the means in which the people are, are sent out are sent out together. We see within verse 7 alone the support that is provided by the body of Christ within itself. We go out together. We have partners to serve alongside. But the good news that we see there in verse 7 is that even if we go out alone, that we don't go out alone. Right, look at what he says at the second part of verse 7. He gives them authority over the unclean spirits. That even if we are to, as followers of Christ, seek to live on mission, to live missionally with our lives, going out and engaging those whom the Lord has brought into our spheres of influence. The good news, the greatest news, is that we don't go out alone, but that the people of God go out equipped with the authority of Christ. Dude, that is incredibly good news. That's the greatest news that we as followers of Christ could imagine in light of this call, this commission to go and to engage the world with this message. And so we see our first point. Christ and his authority goes with his people on mission. As the disciple of Jesus goes, they can go confident in three hard truths. Number one, that they will be rejected. 
right? Number two, that it will be costly. For some, it will actually cost them their lives, and it will be difficult. But as the disciple of Jesus goes, they can go confident in a greater assurance. And that assurance is this, that Christ sends his people out with his authority. And that is indeed a lot of authority. Right? Understanding the authority of Christ changes the way that we go. Right? Our hope for success and the obligation and passion to engage in this work. I love what John Stott says. He says this, his authority on earth, speaking of, of Christ here, his authority on earth allows us to dare to go to all the nations. His authority on, on earth, right, that is established and it is being established, right, it allows us to dare and go to all the nations. His authority in heaven gives us our only hope of success, and his presence with us leaves us no other choice. What, what does that mean? Well, that we can go out among the nations with the message of the gospel uh, with assurance of its success because there is a, th a grave that is empty in the Middle East and a throne that is occupied on high. Right, Because the resurrection of Christ ensures and assures success. Right, And so as we go, we go because we understand the kingship, the lordship of Christ that's being established here on earth. But we also go because we know that we have eternal hope for success. But I love the last element of Stott's quote. His presence with us leaves us no other choice. It's very similar to what we see from uh, the disciple of, disciples of Jesus in the book of Acts. As persecution begins to break out all over the place and Christians are being, being jailed, right? We see the apostles jailed and then they're taken before a council and they're commanded to, to stop speaking of the resurrection of Jesus because it's just throwing the whole city into this upheaval, right? And they look upon those who are, are in these positions of authority, speaking instruction to them, and they say, listen, like, you can judge whatever you want to, but, but we have no other choice but to go. Why? Well, because this is, this is the direction that the resurrection uh, drives the people of God. Right? We have no choice but to. Why? Well, because the Spirit of God has now taken up residence within the people of God. And if we step back and we consider the authority of Christ and the Spirit that is now at work in His people, how in the world do we not go? Right? How do we not, how do we not go? And that's Stott's point. Now, this requires something of you and I. And remember, Right, we're speaking in all of this out of the, the, the idea, the realization, the truth that our hearts have been transformed. Apart from transformed hearts, this isn't the direction that we go. And so we're touching base. We're going, all right, in light of the transformation that the gospel has brought into my life and upon my heart, this is, this is what we are this is what we are, are doing. It will require the death of one's own preferences. Right? And so when we get up each day and we preach the gospel to ourselves, we at the same time put death to put to death our preferences, what we would desire perhaps for our own lives. And our desire becomes living in alignment and in accordance with what God is calling us and equipping us for. Does that make sense so far? Let, let's, let's continue on. Right, the, the follower of Jesus is called to come and die, only then to sacrifice his or her life, regardless of age, gender, or ethnicity, to the mission of God. I love the story of the missionary James Calvert. When James Calvert was, uh, was sent out as a missionary to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands in 1838, the captain of the ship that was taking he and those who would be serving alongside him to this region, to this island, implored them to turn back, insisting that if they were to continue, that both the lives of the leadership as well as those serving alongside them would be lost, to which Calvert replied, we died before we ever came. 
And so when we talk about this realization that we as the people of God are called to go out and to engage our community and our world, to engage the nations in mission and on mission, we have to know that it will require us to die to ourselves. The follower of Christ goes with the message of the gospel, a message that centers on the idea that we are more sinful and broken than we could have ever imagined, while at the same time more loved than we ever could have hoped for. And through it all, we go out in the comfort of Christ the support of his people, and the all-authoritative power of the gospel, confident that, as the Lord himself assured the Apostle Paul, he has many people who are in this city, and that the Spirit will indeed bring about regeneration within the hearts of people. As Jonathan Goforth, the Canadian Presbyterian missionary to China said, All of the resources of the Godhead are at our disposal. All of the resources of the Godhead are at our disposal. Not only do we see that Christ and his authority goes with his people on mission, but also that Christ sustains his people in mission. Let's look at what he says beginning in verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. Now, there's something that's really intentional about what Jesus is doing here. To take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. As one commentator so eloquently put it, the prohibition suggests the urgency of the mission and the necessity of trusting God for provision. As sheep Going out amidst wolves, Jesus calls his disciples into deeper faith and reliance on God to meet their needs as they travel town to town. Followers of Christ are called to dependence on Christ. That's what we see here in verses 8 through 11. Now, what is our tendency? Consider the tendency in your own heart as we are called unto, or as we are beckoned unto reliance on Christ. Our tendency is to rely on our own devices. Right? Our tendency is to rely on our own intellect, our own works to get us into the kingdom, and our own words to bring others with us. The gospel, however, speaks of our need from beginning to end. It speaks of the work of Christ. Here, Jesus is teaching his followers what it looks like to walk in trust and faith in the Lord to meet the needs of his people, as he has all along. Right, The follower of Christ must trust Jesus, both to save us as well as to sustain us. And so I want you to consider for just a moment, what does that look like for you specifically? Trusting in the Lord, not only to save you, but also to sustain you. Jesus makes it clear that when the disciples find a home that welcomes them, serve from that home. Right? Don't look for some type of accommodational upgrade, right? Well, this was the first first house that welcomed me in, but like this house, they're willing to welcome me in, and they have got a lot of really fly things that are going on. Right? He's calling them to to, to embrace this life of of humility and in reliance to trust on, on him. Faithful service to the king and to his mission. And if the message is rejected, what does Jesus say to his followers ought to be their response? Well, he says, hey, shake the dust off of your shoes and move on, right? We've seen that displayed already in chapter 6 from Christ himself, right? Rejected in his own hometown and by his own family. What does he do? Well, we see at the end that he continues on proclaiming the message. 
Now, there is great consequence to the rejection of the gospel. I mean, there is eternal consequence for the rejection of the gospel because we know what we are due. We know what our wages are. Our wages are death and eternal separation from God. And so rejection from the gospel or of the gospel is essentially a welcoming of the judgment that is to come. And that's what this shaking off of the dust from your shoes represents, Right, that there will be a judgment. This is the reality, and that's why there is such urgency to mission. Right, Because there is consequence for rejection of the lordship of Christ. And, and that consequence is eternal separation from him. And so Christ says here, man, there is, there is an urgency to the message. And we are to trust in the sovereignty and the provision of the Lord. And so as the message is rejected, man, shake the dust off and continue on because there are many, many people to engage. Not only do we see that Christ and his authority goes with his people on mission and that Christ sustains his people in mission, but lastly, we see that Christ advances his gospel through mission. This is the means by which Christ has ordained for the mission, the message of the gospel to go forth. Now, we have seen Christ display incredible powers over recent weeks. Right? We've seen him display powers over the elements, his authority and lordship over them. We've seen him display authority over, over evil spirits and oppressive spirits. We've seen him display his authority and power over, over sickness and sin. Right? Let's be clear that if Christ so desired, he might write the message of the gospel in the clouds. But this is the meaning by which Christ here ordains the advancement of this message, the coming of the kingdom of God and salvation found in his name. It says, beginning in verse 12, that they went out and proclaimed. And we are reminded here that trust in the person of Christ, trust in the authority of Christ, results in obedience to the word of Christ. He instructs them to go, and there isn't this like long, hot, heated debate about like how this is to happen and where we are to go. We don't see that. Mark doesn't give it. What do we see? We see them go. Right? There's this instruction to go, and there's this, yeah, like, okay, we're going to go. Why? Well, because we see, like, you. We see your goodness, and we see your power. Like, we trust your person and your authority, and therefore we will go. And what was their message? What was the same message of Jesus and John the Baptist before him, the prophets before him, that people should repent? That they should turn from their sin and turn back to Christ. Seeing the evil of sin, seeing the glory of the Savior, and by grace responding in faith, turning from sin and turning back to God. Six ingredients necessary for true repentance. I came across this this past week, and this was incredible. I'm just going to give you these things. Write these down if you're taking notes. Six ingredients for true repentance. Number one, a sight of sin. We have to see our sin. Right? That we have to see that we are separated. We have to see the existence of sin. Number two, a sorrow for sin. Right? And so as we see our sin, how ought we to respond? What is the right ingredient for repentance? We're baking like a repentance cake here, right? And the second ingredient is sorrowfulness over the sight of our sin against God first and then against people. Number three, in light of these, how do you respond? May you confess your sin, right? A confession of sin, right? Number four, a shame for sin. Number five, a hatred of sin. And then finally, a turning from sin and turning to Christ. I don't know about you, but as I read through these six things initially, I was like, man, that's a lot of things that are leading up to this finally turning from and embracing the Lordship of Jesus. But aren't each one of those things incredibly important when it comes to truly turning and chasing and adoring Jesus. 
Absolutely they are. It is here, following this repentance, that spiritual restoration is realized through the person and work of Jesus. And that now, finally, obedience to all that God calls his people to begins to manifest itself in the transformed life. Finally, we see the power of Christ at work in the disciples. What does it say in verse 13? And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Right? And so we see that there is action, that there is result, that there's not just this sending out and then there's nothing, right? But that the Lord is faithful to work. And I want to say this. I do not think that it is any coincidence at all that this passage falls between Christ's rejection in his hometown and what we will see next week in the retelling of the death of John the Baptist. Last week, Jesus is rejected in his hometown. This week, the apostles are sent out, and next week, there's a retelling of the death of John the Baptist. There is sorrow and sin's effects, tragedy that bookends the sending out of God's people. And we sang it in the beginning. Why is this so important? Well, because we need to know, as is emphasized in verse 7, that God is with us in the valley. We are literally seeing the apostles doing the ministry of Christ here in the valley, right? This is, what, this is what's going on. Mark puts it there for us. This is what happens. Christ is rejected, right? Okay, like that's a down point, right? Then we have the sending out, and then we have a retelling of the death of, of John the Baptist. Pro, to proclaim the message of the kingdom of God will bring about difficulty in your life. And at the same time, and we cannot underemphasize this, while it will bring about great difficulty in our lives, it will at the same time bring about the most unimaginable joy. Right, that living in submission to the will of the Lord and in obedience to his command in light of the realization, the understanding, the recognition of what he has done for us leads us into a joyful obedience that supersedes all of the trouble and trial and difficulty that we experience as messengers of Christ. Daniel Aiken said it like this, those who follow Jesus have the honor and joy of advancing and extending his kingdom, actually sharing what he is doing. And so as we, as we step back and we're in the middle of what we saw last week and the sending out, this call to obedience, this mission, where we're going next week, let's understand that in the valley, as Christ is with his people, there is joy there, right? There's, there's joy there. And only, only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel, only the gospel can do that. And so how do we begin applying what we see here this morning? Let us embrace this idea, right? That the gospel of Jesus is not about following our dreams and being good so that all of our dreams would come true, but it is about bringing a people to a posture of true worship and enjoyment of God. We live life and embrace this idea. We live life to pour it out, right? To pour it out again and again and again and again. Our going is preceded by the realization that all that Christ calls his followers to do is possible only because he has done it first. A well-known pastor and author wrote a book uh, a number of years ago in which he connected um, the doctrine of the incarnation, Christ's entrance into the world with living mission as the model for every believer seeking to live with this go mentality. And here's what he said. He said, Jesus's incarnation is our missional model. What we see Christ doing and calling his people towards here in Mark chapter six, he has already fulfilled on, 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 a, on, a, on a much higher level through his condensation into the world. Jesus's incarnation is our missional model. 
He says, roughly 40 times in John's gospel, Jesus declares that the Father sent him. As we see Jesus here sending his apostles. Indeed, the incarnation is the sending of the second member of the Trinity into human history as, you got it, a missionary. This is what Jesus meant when he taught that Christians would be sent out as missionaries like him into cultures by the power of his Holy Spirit. Three realities of the incarnational missional life. I want us to embrace that terminology. Man, that terminology is so sweet. When we talk about living a life on mission, let us understand how that is influenced by the incarnation of Christ. Christ's coming into the world, how he has done it, and now he is equipping his people to go and to continue the work. Three realities practically of the incarnational missional life. Number one, it is contextual and it crosses cultural barriers. As we talk about living the incarnational missional life, living on mission, we need to understand that this life is contextual and it crosses cultural barriers. Just as Jesus left heaven to enter into culture on earth, Jesus's people are now to do the same. And so what do we do practically? Well, we pursue people who are different than us, ethnically, generationally, and socioeconomically. We pursue people who are different than us, right? It calls us to cross over cultural barriers. Secondly, it is evangelistic. The second reality of the incarnational missional life, it is evangelistic. Jesus came not primarily to heal the physically sick, but to save lost people. Likewise, we are to pursue people for evangelistic friendships. We are to pursue people with our goal being to, to love them and to display the love of Christ for them and to, and to faithfully communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, right? That is, we are pursuing relationships in this way. And then lastly, and there were really like nine of them, but I'm only giving you three. So there you go. You have to get the book to get the rest, I guess. Number three, um, it is humble. It's contextual, crosses cultural barriers. It's evangelistic. And finally, it is humble. As a people, we are to go in humility. We're to go in humility to value the gospel and the glory of God above all things. Practically, an incarnational uh, approach to life often means that we make less money, that we live simpler lives than we could, because why? We value gospel ministry above what worldly standards measure as success. And so, how do we respond this morning to what we see from Mark chapter 6? Number one, see the glory of Christ. I've given you guys a lot of numbers this morning. A lot of numbers. See the glory of Christ. Understand that this happens when and only when God, by the power of his spirit, through the proclamation of his word, opens our blind eyes to see, and he unstops our deaf ears to hear. He breaks our hard hearts, and he replaces them with a new heart. All glory be to Christ. Amen. Hear his call upon the lives of his people. See the glory of Christ and hear his call upon the lives of his people. Man, slay fear and slay excuse and slay sin. Why? Here's why. Because Christ is more beautiful. Right? Christ is more beautiful than the fear of Right, that we oftentimes place at the forefront that prevents us from living in obedience to the word of the Lord, the excuses that we make and the sin that we enjoy. We will not slay sin in our lives until we see, until we gaze upon the beauty of Christ and see him as more valuable. We won't slay the sin in our lives. And so if you're here this morning, man, and you are struggling with sin, and I have no doubt that there are individuals in this room that are in that place this week, right now, right? What do you do? Man, gaze upon the glory of Christ. 
right? Look to our Savior crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. Look to the hope of the resurrection, all that it means for our lives now and all that it means for our lives on into eternity future. And finally, embrace the incarnational missional life. Embrace the incarnational missional life. Ask yourself these questions. What needs to change? And what needs to change for me to begin living this incarnational missional life that I see God calling his people uh, to here? How does your focus need to shift? And practically, what are your next steps? What are your next steps as you begin to live this type of life in light of what Christ has done for us? I want to close with this, a quote from uh, a guy that we love here, man. He's like, this guy's discipled me for a long time, and I've only met him once. (laughs) And his name is John Piper. And he says this, God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with his. And for the sake of his name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts and join his global purpose. Oh, that is so good. And so let's make that our prayer as we close our time together this morning, that we might, uh, in the remainder of our time, enjoy, enjoy gazing upon the glory of Christ And that in doing so, we might renounce all of the things of this world that steal our attention, steal our focus, steal our passion, and that they might instead be rooted and fixed firmly upon the gospel of Christ. Let us make that our prayer this morning as we close our time together. Father, thank you for your word. And again, um, just the power of your spirit and the gospel that works in our lives to to transform us, to change us from one degree of glory to the next. We see through this passage that you are committed to your plan, you are committed to your purpose, you are committed to your will, and we see elsewhere that the gates of hell will not stand against the accomplishment of your mission, that we go out and the race is already won, that your people go out with confidence and assuredness, that the race is over, that the, the, the death has been defeated and the victory is indeed won. And so, so as we close our time, bring us to a posture of adoration for you that we might see the glory of Christ and that in light of seeing the glory of Christ through the goodness of the gospel, that sin might be put to death in our lives as we begin to run together, laboring for the advancement of your kingdom, the fame of the name of Jesus here in this city and in our lives and throughout the world. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, these guys-